Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. I am Joy Anderson, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Denise Hearn about systems change. Denise doesn't fit in a box easily. She's a brilliant thought leader who has a remarkable ability to explain how economic power and paradigms shape our world. You don't really know when the moment will come where there's maybe a vacuum or an opportunity for a new narrative or a new idea to take root. As people creating systems change, we envision alternative pathways. We think about different ways that things could take place. And then when those moments of opportunity arrive, you need to be there. You need to be present. You need to take the narratives and drop them into the system in just the right way that will reorient it. And sometimes that's small, Sometimes that's really big, but all of these moments manifest in different ways. We are starlets, but sometimes a few of us turn left and hope that the rest will follow. In the first segment, we explore how competition and collaboration can be pro-social or anti-social. In the next segment, we discuss how the identification of leverage points in market systems works and how the narrative of free markets masks the complex social systems and policies that shape markets. As part of this, Denise and I sought to emphasize and unmask how power and norms can be disrupted to create more just and equitable markets. Finally, we looked at the concept of paradoxes and how they relate to systems change, one of my all-time favorite topics. The interconnectedness of individuals and systems is real, as is influence they have on each other. This conversation concludes by discussing the importance of envisioning alternative pathways and being prepared to seize the moments and opportunities for change. All right, Denise, pet peeve, what is your most fingers on a blackboard misconception about competition policy and how it really works? Oh, okay. That's a good one. Um, So I guess a few things come to mind. The first is that in some of the spaces I exist in, competition is seen as a dirty word, right? We're all about collaboration, don't we need more collaboration? Not but competition. There, there is a song. I see a song coming to me. I feel it. It's going to be, you know, I'm going to do a musical. Oh, wait, there probably has been one. That was my sort of like kumbaya, you know. And the reality is, if you look at natural systems, collaboration, mutualism, and competition coexist very obviously. So it's, and I think we can't deny we can't deny who we are, right? I mean, competition is also part of fundamental part of human nature. Um, but not only that, that I think what that fails to, to do is to distinguish between 
There are pro-social forms of collaboration. There are antisocial forms of collaboration, which antitrust law calls cartels. <laughs> and you know, ways that oh, power collaboration is not always butterflies and roses. Sometimes yes. it's a mafia. Right. Sometimes it's actually illegal, right? And that's what antitrust law tries to distinguish between is like when collaboration goes too far and it actually becomes a way of coercing, you know, market actors to your own or abusing, you know, your market power to the detriment of other stakeholder groups um, in collaboration with other powerful actors. So um, and then similarly with competition, right, there are pro-social forms of competition that actually generate better innovation and, you know, sometimes having people compete, you know, it, it delivers us better, more, you know, efficient outcomes and things like that. And then sometimes competition goes too far and it becomes ruinous. It becomes predatory. And really the whole the whole body of sort of antitrust law and thinking and case law is, I think, the, you know, at its essence, fundamentally philosophical questions about how to delineate between all of those different things. Um, and what types of market behavior we want to incentivize through our regulatory structures. And it's very complicated to answer that question. It's not always obvious. It's very case specific. Um, and right now, just to add to this, that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion within competition um, communities and with the agencies right now about, you know, um, private sector coordination, because because increasingly big companies are saying, hey, we want to we can't do stuff on our own. We can't solve climate change on our own. We need to get together with other people in our industry to figure out these really complicated things about, you know, how to do greener steel or how to do better recycling, battery recycling, whatever, you, you know, whatever the case is. And um, the regulators have had to ask themselves, OK, how do we how do we ensure that this body of law doesn't stand in the way unnecessarily of pro-social collaboration that would be beneficial while at the same time not taking everyone at their word and assuming that when companies get together, they're always just going to be, you know, doing the best, you know, the best things and um, ensuring that it doesn't become a cover for greenwashing or other, you know, other forms of collusive behavior. And those are really hard and technical questions, but the agencies um, have been updating. They actually have guidelines. They're called competitor collaboration guidelines, and they outline the, the what what is OK, what types of information sharing is OK what types of joint ventures are okay and what are not. Um, and so, you know, I think that's that's like a just from the public's perspective, I think that's a misconception is that collaboration is always good and, you know, competition is always bad. And going back to the, the sort of ongoing theme in so much of this, which is narratives, ideological frameworks, social norms that say this is good and this is bad and this is right and this is wrong too often, Max, the underlying nature of how systems actually work and how they perform and what results they cause. And so an oversimplification leads to a lack of clarity that can be not just problematic, but catastrophic. When I read the stuff that you write, Denise, or I have the joy of having a conversation with you, one of the things that I always learn from that I have a hard time, I have a hard time conceptualizing myself, but you, you have the ability to see market systems 
and be able to identify what will change the behavior, the performance, the nature of that market system. You have the ability to see these leverage points. And and I don't know, I'm always blown away because sometimes they're super arcane. They're not ones that are like the obvious change consumer behavior. They'll buy different things. They're like these. So the very technical places where, where the leverage points come into being. Um, so how, how do you find these leverage points? How do you see market systems in order to see the leverage points? How do you do all of that? I mean, one, I feel like that's a very generous rendering of <laughs> what I try to do. Most of the time, I'm just trying to figure out what the heck is going on in the world. Um, but uh Let's yeah, call that I mean, the I, beginning of a humble practice to say, maybe I don't know. I love how you answer that. Most people would say, oh, I know the system for mapping market systems and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> You're like, I don't know. I kind of look at stuff and try to figure it out. And then when I'm doing that, things like become clearer. That's yeah, practice. Or, or like they only emerge more in different questions. You know, I I think the kind of deeper you go into anything, it just... I feel like it's the onion, you know, where you peel a layer back, a layer back, and you just sort of keep going. Um, but, I mean, in terms of markets, I think there's a few things. And one of them is that the way that we conceptualize markets and think about them is very, very narrative. And um, and those narratives have a lot of staying power and a lot of kind of strength. And, of course, the, you know, the neoliberal frame and the, the, you know, libertarian frame is free markets and markets are these sort of esoteric things that are untethered from, you know, complex social systems or policy and that markets just sort of emerge because people want to trade and they want to barter. And, you know, I read this amazing book by David Graeber, who was an anthropologist, and he talked about actually how markets originated because states wanted to provision their armies when they were traveling far distances. And so they actually created currencies and imposed them on, you know, the the kind of citizenry, or the, the, you know, the, in these far flung shepherd villages and so forth. And actually that you can't you cannot fundamentally uh, separate the market and the state that they coexist. And And I guess another way of saying that is that markets are democratically determined in theory or socially determined things that we also have control over and that that maintain moral and social judgments. So we've decided we shouldn't sell humans in markets and we shouldn't sell body parts in markets. And, you know, and there's there's things that we have collectively decided about the shape of how these how these things should operate. And then, yeah, in, in all kinds of very like pedantic and, te- and technocratic ways, you know, whether it's trade agreements or you know, the, the area I focus on is competition policy, which really looks at how companies interact together in markets. And increasingly what you see is that um, you have a handful of really dominant companies across every industry that set the terms of markets. They set who accesses markets. Like if I'm an app developer, I have to go through Apple's app store and they're going to charge me 27 percent on everything, you know, on purchases that people make uh in my app or you know or of my app and it's there essentially we have these like de facto private regulators now that set the terms and norms of markets and and so i think um yeah so markets are not I, maybe i'll read like this quote that i love and then i'll stop monologuing but um you know this this kind of idea that markets are just free and 
um, that that's actually an idealized state, I think, is a really useful way of masking power. Um, and there's there's this amazing um, feminist author. This was written, I think, in the 1970s, Joe Friedman. And I just am obsessed with this quote because it really clarified things for me. So it's a bit long, but I'll read it. She says, to strive for a structureless group is as useful and as deceptive as to aim at a, quote, objective news story, a value-free social science, or a, quote, free economy. A laissez-faire group is about as realistic as a laissez-faire society. The idea becomes a smokescreen for the strong or the lucky to establish unquestioned hegemony over others. This hegemony can be so easily established because the idea of structurelessness does not prevent the formation of informal structures, only formal ones. Similarly, laissez-faire philosophy did not prevent the economically powerful from establishing control over wages, prices, and the distribution of goods. It only prevented the government from doing so. Thus, structurelessness becomes a way of masking power. Wow, that's so cool. Just, just that's There's just a lot to take in in that quote, um, which we'll definitely put in the show notes. Um, the... Uh, I, w- I just want to really resonate with the anytime we naturalize or af- uh, anthro, the thing where you make people make systems look like humans. Anthropomorphize. Um, that word. Whenever <laughs> we do that to markets, we take away what you were saying before is, is, is when we do that, when we naturalize them, when we assume that they work in a certain way and that they work that it's good that they work in a certain way, naturally, automatically, without human intervention, we can't see them, right? I I do think there's a similar, you can't see it. If you assume that it has to work a certain way, you don't interrogate why it works that way because you just assume it's working that way and then there's some intervention that's keeping it from working the way you want it to work. It's like, no, it's all constructed, right? It's all made up, like how they work is all different. And once you understand that, then the quote you just had is absolutely true. Understanding that means there's power operating in markets every day. And if we don't see it, then 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 we're at a loss for how to change it. But I want to come back to your narrative point because what, what just triggered with me in this is I think we also as people criticizing markets tell a narrative about the evils of capitalism that I think similarly masks how it works. I think maybe you can blow this up if you think I'm wrong, but I do think sometimes naming a market system as capitalism turns it into an ideology, turns it into a narrative about how it works, that it's driven by greed, that it's a that, that it works in a certain way because it's capitalistic that keeps us from actually looking at how the market works because we've assumed the analytic, the, the sort of analytical framework of the sort of capitalism as an idea is the right way to analyze it. And then you don't see the details. You don't see the places where there are just groups of humans trading stuff. You don't see it. It all ends up in one framework versus having... I mean, that's that's the challenge with sort of hegemonic narratives is they become the way we describe everything, which means we can't see because we have one explanation of everything. Yeah, no, I totally, totally agree. And um, 
the I, my favorite way <laughs> that it kind of hit home for me was from Anand Giordaratus, who said that we have a better understanding of gender spectrums and diversity than we do economic because we think it's either capitalism or socialism. But the reality is that every system in the world is on a spectrum somewhere blended between the two. And so to your point, I mean, no, nowhere, even, you know, the there's this conservative um, DC think tank called the Heritage Foundation. And every year they rank the quote freest, you know, free market economies in the world. And it's usually Hong Kong and Singapore are number one and two. And, um, you know, Singapore is like a totally <laughs> state planned economy in so many ways. 80% of Singaporeans live in state-owned housing. I used to live there when I was younger. So I love Singapore. I think it's a brilliant place. Um, you know, they have a sovereign wealth fund that in, invests in a lot of state-owned enterprises. Like, it's just protection hilarious. Of, protection is a park and land and all yes. kinds of things that are sort of because it's an island, it has to have control over the availability of resourcing because if not, like all island nations, you're SOL. So free market does not right. work on an island that has to import and export by definition. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so th there's a lot of elements where there was very specific public planning processes that govern, you know, how the economy works there. And yet the Heritage Foundation puts it up as like, you know, the global example of a free market. It's just so dishonest, right? It's like intellectually dishonest because you're not acknowledging all of the different ways that that states and markets interact in very complex ways that look categorically different than the U.S. versus a Nordic nation versus a South American nation, right? Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think we need to sort of like complexify our narratives a little bit and get go a layer deeper and, um, and again, like move away from these sort of dualistic, you know, either or this or that and recognize that actually most of life exists somewhere in the middle between those two conceptual endpoints. And the need to unmask, to see clearly, to disrupt the norms in how we analyze so that we can see power clearly. Because uh -huh. if we cannot see power clearly, we cannot figure out how to change markets in such a way that they actually are more just, are more equitable, and enable more people to thrive in them, which is what all of us are trying to do. But in some ways, the narratives, whatever they might be, free market or capitalism is evil, sits in the midst of that saying, this is the way you have to see everything. And ironically, keeps us from seeing how power actually works. So Denise, one of my favorite things to think about is paradoxes. And so thinking about that, that, that idea that simultaneously two things are true and that we have to keep them both in place at the same time is what blows up lots of people's brains. I also find it like super relaxing. Like if you know that two things can be true at the same time and they can be in conflict, then like all kinds of things become possible. Like I find this enormously relaxing. I also think it's like super essential to how we think about systems change, right? Because like there are these paradoxes because systems are so complex, how could we possibly understand them without paradox, right? Like 
Talk to me a little bit about this this idea of um, what we can control, what we can't control, emergence inside of systems. Yeah, no, Joy, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's that's definitely how I experience and understand the world. And I actually found the word, which is that it's it's beyond paradox. It's it it describes that two seemingly oppositional truths can coexist at the same time. It's called antimony, and that word is so meaningful to me because I think in any situation, whether it's a global conflict or something, you can acknowledge that not only that multiple people's felt experiences can be true to them, but there can be complex truths that cannot, that don't, that are non-dualistic, right? Not one or the other. Right. Um, right. And creates more, it just creates more possibilities yeah. in the middle, right? Like it just, more yes. ways of understanding, more ways of seeing and most, you know, spiritual traditions also speak to this in some way about kind of a non-dual perspective, being able to see from multiple multiple angles. Um, but when I think about systems, and I think you had posed a question to me about like name a little discovery about a complex system that turns out to be a big thing, which I love. Um, you know, I got thinking about this concept that I learned about a few years ago of emergence, which is how all of life... Um, emerges, for lack of a better word, um, which is that the component parts um, have to combine and recombine and recombine and generate an outcome that's nonlinear. Um, and and so if you think about uh, the human brain as an example, you know, consciousness is not, you can't just throw the physical materials of the brain into a corner, you know, the the cells and the neurons and the, you know, all of this, that doesn't Consciousness doesn't come from that place. It comes from layers and layers of those component parts, you know, connecting and combining in certain ways that then recombine, that then recombine. And then there's this emergent outcome called consciousness. And that pattern of emergence um, is true of any complex system, really. So, you know, the economy, our family structures, um, you know, our own bodies, our political systems, democracy, all these things, financial systems. They're all they all display emergent properties. Um, they're complex complex adaptive systems. So complex adaptive systems, but even in the core of that, then I think it's just what's what's what starts is patterns, right? Something that has enough consistency that it can create enough cohesion, coherence, something of like how all this works together is kind of the core of what a system is, right? That you're saying it's not. It's not the component pieces, it's how they work together. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that about how that comes to be, how that emerges, how that how we how those things form also knows means that you can assume they can change, right? Just because our brains came together as a certain way, it doesn't mean that our brains are always gonna work this way. Completely they could change. So how yeah, does change happen? Yeah, and they're changing all the time. So if you think about um, if you think about the economy or or even regulatory structures as an example, where you know we as individual component parts, as individuals, kind of exert this upward pressure, upward causation on the system, where we go and we make laws and we make rules and we enforce them and we do these things, and then and you know and then they emerges from that a system which then actually reflexively has this downward causation on our behavior. It impacts the way we behave. And and it's this re constant reflective process of 
co-shape of co-shaping. Um, and, you know, I think one easy way for, for me to understand it that I've heard someone else speak to is if you think about a flock of starlings, you know, those beautiful murmurations where they kind of shape shift, you know, throughout these gorgeous fields and they, they look very magical. Um, but starlings also There's exhibit like water oh, and cliffs and all kinds of other things that are in the background of these gorgeous starlings moving through it. I yeah. totally can picture it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And actually I, we just moved to Vermont and there's lots of starlings around here. So I keep seeing murmurations everywhere, which is so magical. It's amazing. Um, but you know, they, so they just, they display something called weak emergence, but basically where you can calculate it mathematically, some emergent phenomenon you can't, um, it's too complex and chaotic, but basically they, um, starlings orient their movements within a certain distance of the actors around them. So they'll never be more than a few, you know, inches away from the next immediate bird. And that's how they kind of flow together. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know, so then it's like, well, who's controlling the direction of how they move, right? And there's no one actor that that is. But you can, what can happen is you can have an outlying bird or an outlier where it will move like just a little bit more outside of the kind of general range of distance or motion and then the flock reorients around you know that behavior and so that to me is a really great analogy for how us as individuals can have actually profound impact on systems by often you know by being an outlier sort of pushing things a little bit beyond the realm of what's normal or normative um, and you know systems can sometimes reorient around that at the same time you as one individual can't control the ultimate direction of or, you know, flow of these systems in any meaningful way. And that, again, brings us to paradox that your actions as an individual have these rippling effects that can be quite profound at the same time. Any one individual is is totally incapable of controlling or directing complex systems. So and you're they, controlled by it. Right. So you both can yes. influence it. And what your choices are, are, are shaped by it. And I think that's where people get stuck, right? They, I was, they work in a big, I was, I was talking to somebody earlier today who works in a, in a, in a big government system and, um, you know, she lives in this big system and it can seem completely overwhelming that it has patterns to how it works and rules and processes, and it seems intractable. And if you tried to show up and say, poof, I can make this work differently because I'm a change agent, you will get squished like a bug not that we should squish <laughs> bugs but you will be squished like a bug yeah and so yeah. but the same time like so understanding that at the same time of saying she's like this little bunny rabbit that bounces through complex systems and pushes them and all kinds of like a little nudge like she's like a it's not like it's like a little i don't know i kept thinking of her as this bunny she's like bouncing through these systems and like the fact that she's there or that she pops up and asks a new question or that she it's very that creates change okay. at the same time that she's controlled by the system and being able to be okay that both of those are true at the same yep. time is really yes. hard, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. But also I think, you know, sometimes we think about, oh, tear down the, the system, you know, <laughs> and the reality is like, we are all the system, right? We are all part of, you cannot extract yourself from these systems, just to your point. And so Again, you have to adopt this kind of non-dualism to appreciate that 
we are fundamentally a part of and embedded in every type of system that we maybe don't like um, at the same time have the ability to try to try to change them in, in various ways and also that not just us as individuals but there can also be like totally random chaotic events could be natural events it could be political disasters, who knows? I mean, they don't have to be negative either, but those things can also really be catalysts for change. Um, and I'm I'm usually not one to quote Milton Friedman, but let me just get... <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed. I wouldn't have guessed. <laughs> I know, I know. But let me... I do really love this one quote. Um, who did I send it to? Okay, here we go. So, only in a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. And I think that's so true. So it's like you don't know when the moment comes where there's maybe a vacuum or there's an opportunity for a new narrative or a new idea to take root. But part of our part of what we're here to to try to do is and what you do so often at criterion is is like envision alternative pathways envision different ways that things could take place and when those moments of opportunity arise being being there and being present to be able to kind of insert them into the system in ways that then reorient it um, and sometimes that's small and sometimes that's really big um, and they you know they all kind of manifest in different ways so we are all starlings, but sometimes a few of us just turn left. Yeah. To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.